This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Yesterday was quite the day in the United States. The word embarrassment has been used by a number of their government officials. You take a look at some of the pictures that have been taken from inside the Congress building where you have papers strewn everywhere. I mean, vandals got inside and wrecked stuff, broke windows, sat in chairs, took pictures. I think other world leaders were reacting. And now you have people who are leaving the Trump administration, resigning their posts. You have questions about what happens between now and the 20th of January, of questions about how this happened, what this means, what are the lingering effects. So many things to talk about. And then the idea that the 25th Amendment could be used to end Trump's presidency, Donald Trump's presidency right now. Dr. Matthew Lebo is a professor of political science at Western University. He's an expert on the U.S. presidency, on political parties, on elections, on Congress. He is the perfect person to ask about a lot of this. Dr. Lebo, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Well, why don't we start with Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, who is a Republican congressman, relaying a statement, we'll hear it in just a little while, that essentially asks for the 25th Amendment to be used to replace U.S. President Donald Trump. What do you make of that? It's it's one of the most recent developments. Uh, there's a lot of calls for, for the 25th Amendment to be used. Um, so the 25th Amendment is um, uh, to the Constitution is a mechanism for the vice president and the cabinet to remove a president, whether the president wants to be removed or not. It's for you know, presidential uh, incapacity or, or uh, something like that. Um, so to hear that Republican lawmakers are, are calling for that, that is pretty, um, pretty surprising. Um, but after yesterday, I guess it's not that surprising. It, it, it's nice to see. Um, whether or not that happens, though, I mean, that's, that's it's still difficult to imagine that Mike Pence and, and that the, the crowd of, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, lackeys, that Trump has surrounded himself with in the cabinet, that they would do this, that seems like a long shot. You have written a book with Greg Koger on strategic party government, why winning Trump's ideology, and that seems so fitting right now. And when we use the word Trump there, it's not Donald J. Trump. It's it's the old version of Trump. Remember that when you hearken back to playing Euchre and what was Trump? Now, you know, that's the word we're talking about. So strategic party government, why winning Trump's ideology? When you look at that kind of a topic right now, winning and keeping and all of those sorts of things, what are you seeing? Well, that that especially with a new president coming in, when Biden takes over, that it will still be the Republicans in Congress. It will be their main job to make him look bad. And that that's really the pattern that we've seen increasing over the last couple of decades, that uh, legislators are no longer really interested in you know the, their public policies, in, in uh, doing what their constituents need, or, or in uh, uh, helping um, 
helping the policy goals of their party. They're just interested in their reputation looking better and in ruining the reputation of the other party. So, for example, when when Barack Obama became president, Mitch McConnell said, our job is to make him a one-term president and to not help him with anything, to stop him from doing anything. And I expect that'll, you know, even with what's going on now, that'll still be the attitude when uh, it's President Biden and um, and there's still going to be 50 Republican senators uh, in the U.S. Senate. Um, so, you know, yesterday you saw a lot of Republicans sort of trying to step back from the brink of anarchy in the Capitol. But um, I think politically, they'll still be trying to, to um, make Biden look bad. And they, they still won't be thinking about, you know, what are the policies that the, that the U.S. needs, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Scary. Dr. Matthew Lebo joining us, professor of political science at Western University, expert on the presidency and political parties, elections, Congress, as we look back at yesterday and then the fallout that continues today in the United States. Dr. Lebo, as far as the the idea that you know leadership is simply about keeping your job is that because that exists here in Canada that exists in in any country i mean the us is not going down a path that no one else is going down right now we, we see more of that that it's more important to keep your job have they forgotten that the best way to keep your job is to do it well oh well, i think that, that it's always been a, the main goal of a member of congress to get reelected um, but what's what's changed is just the the inability to look across at the opposition and see them as the opposition. And over time, as the rhetoric has gotten worse, there's the opposition is seen as the enemy. And that the the acceptance that sometimes the opposition will hold power uh, that's lost a lot of legitimacy. So you know that that. Republicans still, after yesterday, after the, the riots yesterday, there's still Republicans standing up and saying that they don't recognize the legitimacy of the election. There were still a hundred and something uh, Republican House members and six senators who didn't want to recognize that Biden could have won fairly. And it takes a takes you know a couple decades to get there, but the the U.S. has done it in in slowly changing. Um, really changing sort of the information environment that Republicans and their voters are are exposed to. And over time, they, they've just come to live in a different reality. And in that reality, Democrats are, are a danger to the country and they can't, they can't be trusted to hold power. And that's really leads you away from uh, democracy. And uh, that's what we saw bursting out yesterday was, you know, this was people, you know, don't trust the opposition um, and and in, in that distrust, they're the ones who are imperiling democracy. When the level of a river rises, sometimes it will get oh, up over the bank just a little bit, and a little bit will spill over, and then it will recede and it continues to flow. In this case, what do you think? Have we seen a rise that kind of scared everybody as to what happened? Whoa, that's that's frightening. One woman was shot. Three other people died. Um, this was this was not a great day in American history. How do you foresee the next little while? Are we going to see more rises of this river, or could things just start to flow again? Well, if there's anything positive to be said about yesterday, it's that it just exposes that this is this has been possible for a long time, um, 
And uh, I mean, yesterday was was horrific, but it wasn't new. You know, the the rhetoric that has been that has been going on for you know months about the election, but years about um, what what uh, democratic leaders are all about, what they want for America. That's not that's not new. And so, you know, it, it's time that some people like um, the Mitch McConnell, the leader, uh, Republican leader in the Senate and, and others in the Senate, uh, recognize that this is sort of the natural end uh, or natural state of things for the way that they have demonized the Democratic Party um, and the way that they have delegitimized uh, elections. Um, so maybe some Republicans will help try and stitch democracy back together and try and slowly bring back uh, reality into the, into the minds of some Trump voters, um, and especially the most extreme ones. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it was, yeah, it's a, it's a, a burst of, of violence, but the underlying sentiment, you know, didn't burst out yesterday. It's, it's been there for a long time. Dr. Matthew Lebo with us, professor of political science at Western University, author of Strategic Party Government, Why Winning Trump's Ideology. And this is something that has existed in politics for some time and seems to continue to grow. Dr. Lebo, as a final note in all of this, the Republican Party, you know, there's a lot of division everywhere. How much division exists in the Republican Party and, and could that splinter? I mean, that's a, a great question. I'm really interested in that. You, you, Mitt Romney, uh, who voted to impeach Donald Trump yesterday, said in the Senate, you know, that, that, that the president incited an insurrection. Um, and then someone else in his party, Josh Hawley, another senator, stands up and, and still is stoking uh, these conspiracy theories and, and uh, delegitimizing the election. How long can those two be in the same political party? Uh, you know, in most countries... Uh, they would have split already, um, but uh, in the United States, they they just they'll do everything they can to hold the party together because the two sides are so closely matched. Um, but but it is quite possible uh, that that some Republicans will just say enough and you know call themselves independents. They certainly wouldn't join the Democrats, but somebody like Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski could just say, "I'm calling myself an independent, and 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 this is not the party that that I've ever been a part of." Dr. Lebo, thank you so much for your insight. Please keep safe. You're welcome. Thanks. It's Dr. Matthew Lebo, professor of political science at Western University, focuses on the presidency in the United States, political parties, elections, Congress. He's been part of the Center for Behavioral Political Economy and chair of the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University in New York. So he's been in and around this, has studied it, and... It's uh, it's nothing that's going to subside soon, is it? There's a lot still to come. Very interesting note, just before we leave this, really interesting note that came with regard to some of the resignations in the Trump administration. And it came from Mick Mulvaney, who was part of the administration, who said he had to resign. But his line that, quote, those who choose to stay, and I have talked with some of them, are choosing to stay because they're worried the president might put someone worse in. This is a member of the Trump administration. Some are staying essentially to protect the post. Because if they leave, who comes in? When was the last time you thought you would hear that about a country 
like the United States. This is a great country. It's an incredibly powerful country. When was the last time you thought? There's no way there was a last time. Unbelievable what continues to happen. We'll continue to call them. First Minister's meeting is taking place today. And there are a few things on the agenda. But speeding up COVID-19 vaccinations is there. And it's apparently high on the list. According to Global News, Canada has received 425,000 doses of Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And fewer than 150,000 Canadians have received shots. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk more about this. Dr. Colin Furness is an assistant professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Furness, thanks for taking some time for us. Good afternoon. Thanks. Even before we get to vaccine rollout, just got a great question from Terry that you may be able to help us out with. Terry says, I'm curious as to what the actual shelf life of these vaccines happens to be if they don't get into our arms quickly. Do we know anything about that? I don't personally know, but my guess is that given the cold storage requirements, the shelf life is probably quite a long time. Not a lot of decay happens at at, at those kinds of really cold temperatures. So think of all the worries we have. That's probably not high on the list. All right. We've got a lot of worries. And uh, to strike one off the list or at least move it way down the list. Ah, Okay, that that feels good. Well, let's move into... The vaccine rollout, whether we look nationally, whether we look provincially, all we hear is it's slow, it's messy, it's confusing, it's a lot of things. And when you look around at other countries, France, the United States, slow, confusing, messy, everybody seems to be having similar issues. How do you see things playing out so far? I think the narrative is going to be a little bit different in each province. I know Prince Edward Island has done an amazing job, for example. They're fortunate in that they're small. And the kinds of problems, logistical problems in doing a vaccine program get really messy when you scale up. So Ontario, which has done a particularly poor job, also has the largest population. So in, in, in a lot of ways, it's got the biggest challenges. The, the big one, I think, um, and, and I don't want to let the bureaucrats off the hook here, but, but a big problem, of course, is this cold storage requirement. So it's easy enough to find freezers to put the stuff in. That was not the problem. But there seemed to be an inability to get one of these freezers on a truck. In other words, once the vaccine is stored in a basement somewhere in a super cold freezer, a lot of head scratching around how do we get it out of the freezer and into people's arms. And we didn't expect to have it in December. I think there was a general feeling that there'd be more time to figure this out. And then all of a sudden, wonderful problem. We got the vaccine a little bit early. And I think that did catch folks off guard a bit. So that's me apologizing for the way it's gone. That said... That said, the, the story of pandemic management in Canada, particularly Ontario, actually really Ontario, very heavily so, has been to sideline expertise. And, and it's, it's really odd. In other words, we know a lot about how to do vaccinations, but General Hillier, you know, good guy, respected general, um, I don't want to impugn him personally at all, but I think he would agree he didn't know anything about vaccines or public health. So we're on his learning curve. And the fact that he, he, he slowed down or eliminated vaccinations over a few days over the holidays, not a single person in healthcare would have said that was anything but dumb. And that tells me, not that the delay was tragic, it tells me that there's no one around his table 
with expertise giving him advice. And I hope that's changed. But that's been the story of pandemic management, that the experts have all been on the, on the, on the, on the wrong side of the glass, tapping and really trying to get some attention to say, really, there's a better way to do this. And so the vaccine program has kind of fit that same mold. Dr. Colin Furness with us, assistant professor at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. You raise such an interesting point because you have someone like retired General Hillier who is so well-respected. Look at his resume. He's a phenomenal human being, but the idea that, yeah, okay, but here's something new for you. I mean, the two of us wouldn't all of a sudden go into aerospace engineering and be expected to perform well on our first day. Was this kind of, hey, let's put in somebody that's that's well-respected and a good figurehead and that sort of thing, as opposed to who's the right person for the job? Given the urgency... I think it was an inappropriate choice. I think he's a smart guy. That's my guess. And my guess is that in another month or so, he'll have climbed that learning curve and will be in good shape. But that was kind of an unnecessary slow start, I think. And and even given that he took the job, clearly wasn't getting advice right away, that's a big mistake. Now, he stood up and he took responsibility and he said, that was on me, that was my fault, we're going to fix that, we're going to move on, we're going to learn from it. And I think that was a good responsible response. It still doesn't, though, make up for the fact that we have people who really understand how to do vaccine programs and they should have been at the table. Let's talk a little bit about how a vaccine reaches an arm. Uh, we always used to love on ABC things like Conjunction Junction and uh, and Schoolhouse uh, Rock and all those sorts of things. They could easily make one now for how a vaccine gets administered. When we look at from acquisition to administering the vaccine, what is taking place right now? I love Schoolhouse Rock, and I'd love to see that done in, a, in an animated <laughs> way. It would, it, would, it would elevate us all. Um, what has to happen is it has to come out of cold storage. It has to be uh, diluted. It has to be put into syringes and then into people's arms. And there is a time limit there. I don't actually have the specs in front of me, so I'm not sure exactly what those what those parameters are. But that, that's more or less the process. And so you can't just take it on the bus and go to the long-term care home and, and get to work. You need to figure out a way how to get the really super cold vaccine to where you need to get to and then take it out and, and dilute it and distribute it. So it's it's complicated. And there's no question that's complicated. And with long-term care homes, we started by saying, well, we're not going to do residents, we're going to do staff, because we can make staff, we can get staff to find their way to a nearby facility. We can't really do that with residents so easily. And now, of course, we've got the Moderna vaccine, which doesn't have, it's cold, but not nearly as cold. And that's more mobile, that's more portable. And if we get more vaccines that, I mean, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single shot, not a double shot. And it, uh, I don't think it has any real cold storage requirements maybe from a normal apart from a normal fridge so we we hopefully will get vaccines that are a bit easier to use and i think that will be helpful dr furness what do you expect to have happen in the next little while are we going to develop a, a system simply because one hasn't existed before it, it's kind of being pieced together here and then things will roll or is this really a a wait and hope scenario 
Well, we already have infrastructure for doing inoculation. You know, we, we vaccinate a third of our population every year within a few weeks for influenza, and that's pretty smooth. So obviously different logistics with respect to this cold storage. But I, I think it's, it's uh, much, much of it is the same, though. And I think we need to see this not as a crazy logistical operation, but a public health program with some logistical issues. And I think that's, a, that's a, probably a better way to understand it. We'll get it figured out. I think it is getting figured out. I'm optimistic. In fact, I'm guessing we'll probably actually run out of vaccine by the end of January, and there'll be a little bit of a lull before we get into February. So a lot of the hullabaloo about getting started slowly may actually give way to, oh, we got caught up and maybe even got ahead of our supply. Ultimately, I think the supply of vaccine itself into the country is going to be the, the main bottleneck over time. Right. Dr. Colin Furness joining us, assistant professor at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. And how much of a stumbling block could that be? I mean, we've heard that certain countries, and Canada's been listed, have enough vaccine on order that they would vaccinate their citizens five times. And you've got other countries saying, hey, we're, what about us? But in terms of, of acquiring that vaccine, how much of a challenge can that be? Canada seems to have done a really good job, and so kudos to to those folks in the federal government who led the way to to elbow their way to the front of the line, to sign those contracts, to spend money, to say we will put our eggs in lots of baskets. We we will have that many vaccines per person only because we didn't know which will be successful and which weren't. And and I think spreading that around and, and spending some money to do that was smart, and I'm I'm really proud that they did that. If all the vaccines get approved, and by some time later this year we find ourselves with a surplus of vaccine. That would be a fantastic problem to have because then we could actually start directing some of it to the global south. We could actually maybe live up to some of the big statements we make about fairness and equity and and be able to support uh, places that are having more difficulty with that. And there's going to be no shortage of candidates, candidate countries that didn't have the resources and the wherewithal to to push the way to the front of the line. So I think we're going to have a really great opportunity to lead once all those taps come on. But not every vaccine may get approved just because it's just because it's under development just because we wrote a check does not mean we'll actually see it right as a final note dr furness is there anything else that you're watching closely with regard to vaccine rollout I think we've really covered the main things. I, I do worry about equity on a global basis. A lot of these contracts are all a secret, you know, that, that were negotiated between governments and, and the drug manufacturers. And, you know, when you don't have transparency, all kinds of things can happen. And I understand why they're secret, but that creates room for a lot of problems and a lot of inequity. And so I really want to make sure that countries that can actually support a certain amount of global equity do that and, and step up and do that. And I, I'm optimistic that Canada well and and i think that'll be great to see well we really appreciate your time and your expertise on this issue dr Furness. i think you've made us all feel a little bit better so thanks for doing that my pleasure thanks keep safe thanks that's dr colin Furness, assistant professor at the dalla school of public health at the university of toronto can you imagine we get to a day when one of the larger problems we have in this country with relation to COVID 19 is how do we distribute our excess vaccine to other countries that need it? Huh. Wouldn't that be a day? Wouldn't that be a day? But in the meantime, they're trying to figure out how to do this quickly, efficiently, effectively, and maybe it's off to a slow start. You can hold the premier to saying, give us a couple of weeks and we'll have this going. 
Okay. Hey, yeah. If what's our alternative? No problem. We're ready. Um, but in the meantime, it's uh, it's a wait, and it's a continue to do things that we're all tired of doing. Jonathan O'Hagan. If you missed our interview with Jonathan O'Hagan, 31 years old. He's a personal trainer. He's in the Dominican Republic in a hospital a couple of days ago. His lungs collapsed because he has COVID-19, and he admits he got caught up in the confusion. He went to the Dominican because he said, all right, I, enough. I've had enough. And now wishes he hadn't done that. But he's telling his story to try and tell the rest of us, okay, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then maybe, maybe that light at the end of the tunnel where Canada can say, okay, we've, we've got everybody who wants a vaccine vaccinated, Fantastic. Uh, What other countries around the world are hurting for vaccine? Because we've got too much. Let's hope that that light at the end of this tunnel exists somewhere out there. That ray is shining in. We're a little ways away from it, but uh, let's hope it's there. It is time to talk about flying in a plane. It's something that is happening, and it's something that a lot of us wish was happening to us. Wouldn't it be nice to fly off somewhere sunny? Well, that's not happening. That's not happening in a lot of ways. We'll get there. But we do know that if you do need to fly, that there is some pre-screening that needs to go on. There were changes announced by the federal government yesterday. What does that mean locally? Joining us right now is the president of the London International Airport Authority, Mike Seabrook. Mike, how are you doing in 2021 so far? Yeah, good. Uh, thanks, Mike, for asking. Yeah, it's uh, sort of starting the way 2020 ended, but we're optimistic. Well, let's keep that. Let's keep that optimism. If we're talking about some flights that are going in and out of London, we have been able to check in at various times with you. What can you tell us about activity at the airport right now? Well, we're we're at we're at about a twenty fifteen to twenty percent volume of of our normal activity. So, it it's uh, we are down significantly. We've been we've been at that level, I would say, consistently since about uh, April or May of last year. Um, you know, we were originally kind of forecasting a little bit. Uh, a little bit of an uptake in the first quarter, first half of 2021, but it's not happening. So, um, for obvious reasons, so it is slow out here, Mike. But we still do have service. What does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Because this has been going on for a while, where you've been operating, like many businesses, at a very small percentage of what you would consider to be normal. Yeah, well, we've, uh, I mean, fortunately, we were in pretty good financial shape as we entered this pandemic. We had very little debt on the airport, and we are an incorporated company, so we're not, we're not part of the municipal or federal or provincial government, so we are, we, we're a non-shared uh, private sector company. So what we have to do is make sure that we, we can, aff- we have the resources to continue to operate, and we've cut our expenditures significantly. We've postponed all our capital projects. And we've got our service level to, I would consider, about minimum. And uh, at that, this level right now, we believe we can, we're confident we can sustain ourselves through 2021 and uh, and then be on the road to recovery in, uh, in the next year. But it's a long haul and a bit of a subdued uh, environment at the airport. But, you know, we're, uh, it's uh, the whole world's facing this, so we're just part of it. That's just it. 
We're talking with Mike Seabrook, president of the London International Airport. Uh, Yesterday, of course, we had Transport Minister Mark Garneau, who came out and said that effective as of midnight last night, regardless of citizenship, all travelers five years of age or older must provide proof of a negative laboratory test result for COVID-19 to an airline prior to boarding a flight to Canada must be performed using one of two types of COVID-19 tests. There were a lot of other details. What does that mean from a local standpoint? Does it affect much of what happens in London? Well, at this point, no, because we don't have any international flights. The flights we do normally, but um, right now we've only got four domestic flights that come in here a day. So it really has no short-term impact. But if somebody is flying in from from Frankfurt into uh, Toronto and then connecting through to London, then they clearly have to have the test and provide proof of it before they, Air Canada or whoever the carriers would let them on in uh, in Frankfurt. So, it, you know, the the this testing and Toronto Pearson has just announced another one uh, that's uh, that that they're implementing uh, uh, any day now that involves testing when somebody arrives, and the hope is, and it's a, another form of rapid testing, and the hope is that. Um, this rapid testing becomes reliable and widespread, and it allows quarantine times um, when somebody arrives at a destination to be reduced or or eliminated. And you know, with the with the virus here to for at least the foreseeable short term futures here to stay, that uh, if travel is going to start up, we've got to make sure people don't have it when they get on the aircraft. There's proof of it when they arrive that they don't have it, and that we can limit the quarantine times when they do arrive at their destination, because it, you just imagine, it's it's not really um, doable uh, in a lot of instances to have to go into some into Canada and quarantine 14 days. It just, it really takes the, uh, the, the whatever the benefit of your travel was out of the equation. So could this, in requesting these tests, could this end up assisting the airline industry then, in your opinion? Yeah, and that's the, that's the hope of the industry, and that's what airlines and airports and travel agents and, and uh, the whole tourism sector are hoping for, that, um, you know, as we, as we progress with this to the second half of 2021 and into 2022, that there is some form of reliable rapid testing that... Uh, that allow people, uh, what I said before, to get on the aircraft and, and when they get to that aircraft, uh, get to the destination, to eliminate or greatly reduce the quarantine time, and that'll help with, with you know, travel levels and get people feeling confident to travel to see friends and loved ones and for business and reasons like that. So, it's a slow haul, though. Um, I mean, as an industry, we we with the with the government uh, advising people not to travel. Um, we're certainly in no position to be advocating for people to travel. It's sad, and uh, it would help us immensely if people did, but would, under the current environment, I mean, we, it just can't happen. Mike Seabrook joining us, president of the London International Airport. And I guess, Mike, as a final note, you mentioned there are no international flights coming into London. Is that expected to stay the same for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I would. Um, most of our international flights, uh, well, if you take last year, for example, we had a lot of Florida, Vegas, Caribbean. Um, so all those were canceled this year for obvious reasons. They won't. They don't operate in the summertime because people don't go to those destinations in the same number. So I guess the best case scenario for us would be that there's some um, 
there's some let up with this virus, there's some better testing, better procedures, and then in the fall, late fall, November, December, we could start to see them return to London. Well, we'll see what does happen. Mike, please keep safe. Thank you so much for the update, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, the same to you. Thanks, Mike. That is Mike Seabrook, president of the London International Airport Authority. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.